Well, today, Jesus is going to receive a giant eye roll from old friends and acquaintances. So flip in your Bible to Matthew chapter 13, and we're picking up in verse 53 today. Matthew 13, verse 53. It says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Jesus' hometown, where he grew up, was Nazareth, a small town about 35 miles southwest of Capernaum, which, as you may remember, is his base of operations during his Galilean ministry. Jesus is not coming to Nazareth for a family visit, though. He's coming as a rabbi, as a teacher, accompanied by his disciples, his, his students. He didn't just happen to be in town for the weekend for a family visit. Jesus is actively involved in carrying out his ministry. And Nazareth is one of the many stops along his journey as he's traveling throughout the Galilean area. Because this is his hometown and Jesus is a celebrity of sorts at this point in his ministry, we might expect him to receive a warm hero's welcome. Maybe a parade, the high school band would be playing, the mayor would give him the key to the city type of thing. That's not the kind of welcome that he receives, though. As he often did on the Sabbath, Jesus went into the local synagogue there and he began to teach. This was apparently the first time the people in Jesus' hometown have heard him teach since he began his public ministry. This is a new context for them to see Jesus in. It says the people are amazed. They are astonished. They're astounded. They're surprised by the authority and the wisdom of his teaching. But this amazement is also accompanied by skepticism. They are having trouble accepting that this is the same person that they have known as a child growing up in their town. They ask, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Verse 55, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas with us? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's kid? Our families have known each other for years. We know his brothers and sisters. We grew up with this guy. We were in the same class at school together. We used to go fishing with each other when we were kids. Now he's trying to pass himself off as some great prophet of God. Now, you may be a big shot out there, Jesus, but you're just the carpenter's kid to us. And they took offense at him, it says. The word translated offense means to be displeased, upset, put off, angry, take issue with. They refuse to believe that this same Jesus that they grew up with is now a great teacher and a worker of miracles not to mention being the Messiah. Do you remember the parable Jesus told 
about not putting new wine into old wineskins and the parable about not sewing a piece of new unshrunk cloth onto an old garment to patch it. We talked about those back in Matthew chapter 9. The new and the old are not compatible with each other. We can't mix the new and the old together to to embrace the new thing that God is doing, we have to let go of the old way of thinking and doing things. And this story about how the people from Jesus' hometown are reacting to him is another example of what those parables are talking about. In order for these people to see Jesus as the Messiah, they need to let go of their old ideas about him. He's not just the kid they grew up with. He's not just the carpenter's kid who repaired their grandmother's rocking chair. The same is true for people in our day. In order for people to see Jesus as the Messiah, they need to let go of the ideas of cultural Christianity that they have grown up with. Jesus is not a plank in a political platform. He's not the leader of a culture war. He's not a bumper sticker. He's not a cuss word. He's not the handsome white guy with long hair in the picture on the Sunday school room wall. He's not a bit of jewelry to hang around our neck. He's not an old-fashioned superstition grandmother believes in. Jesus' family members are mentioned here Jesus' family members are mentioned here in verses 55 and 56, and this is really a good spot to give a little information about them, uh, in particular his half-brothers and half-sisters here. And why am I referring to his sisters and brothers as half-brothers and half-sisters? Because they all had the same mother, but not the same father. Now, while on the topic of Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, you'll notice that he's not mentioned by name here at all. There's only a reference to him when people refer to Jesus as the carpenter's son. It's believed that Joseph is deceased at this point in the story. Jesus' half-brother James will be the author of the book of James that we have in the Bible. He will become a very powerful and influential leader in the early church. In fact, he will actually become the main leader of the church in Jerusalem. And according to the historian Josephus, in AD 62, the Jewish high priest Ananus will have James stoned to death for being a follower of Jesus as Messiah. Jesus' half-brother Judas, also known as Jude, will also be a leader in the early church and be the author of the book of Jude that we have in our Bible. He will also die as a martyr for his faith in Jesus as Messiah. The details of that, though, are difficult to pin down. We don't have reliable historical information available to us about the other half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus. It's interesting to consider that Jesus' own family members are not believers in Jesus as Messiah at this point in the story, but they will become believers in him as Messiah following his crucifixion and resurrection. 
If anyone would have doubts about Jesus being the Messiah, it would have been his own family members. They grew up with him. They lived with him. They would have been the strongest skeptics. But something happened that changed their minds about Jesus. So much so that his half-brothers, James and Jude, will die as martyrs for their belief in Jesus, not as their brother, but as the Son of God, the Messiah. This is a compelling argument for Jesus truly being the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, in 57, Jesus answers them. He says this, he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Jesus responds to the doubts raised about him with what's believed to be a common proverb of the time. Now, another way of stating the same idea behind that proverb is familiarity breeds contempt. And the basic idea behind that is that we tend to lose respect for someone the more familiar we are with them. Uh, Some examples that you may have encountered or that you can at least relate to. For those of you who are parents, you have probably had or will have the experience where you gave your kids some bit of profound wisdom, which they passed off as nothing, and then they come back to you later and tell you about this amazing wisdom and insight that their friend's parents shared with them (laughs) just a few days later. And it's the same thing that you told them (laughs) earlier. You've experienced that one? Or if you're married, you've probably had a similar experience with your spouse. You gave your spouse some great bit of advice, which they ignored as nothing. Then they tell you later about this amazing advice that someone else gave to them, which is exactly the same thing that you had told them earlier. You're... I know you. (laughs) I I can't pay attention to what familiarity breeds contempt. Another example, maybe you learn a new skill at work and you ask your boss if you can have a shot at doing this new thing. But the boss, he refuses because you're the person who does this other thing really well not this new thing. And you've been pigeonholed. The boss knows what you do best and what is not really your thing. Well, these people in Nazareth are unable to appreciate who Jesus is because of their assumed familiarity with him. They assume that they know a lot more about Jesus than they really do. They've already decided in their minds who Jesus is and who Jesus isn't before considering the obvious evidence standing in front of them. Again, it makes me think of our own country and culture and the general attitude many people have toward Jesus Christ. 
fragments of Jesus and Christianity are so ingrained in our culture that people assume that they know more about Jesus than they really do. And this assumed familiarity has produced a kind of contempt for Jesus in them. <clears throat> they say, Jesus Christ can't be the answer to life's ultimate questions. He's a part of American folklore, not something to be taken seriously for explaining reality and providing spiritual direction for a person's life. They choose instead to seek answers from other places like Eastern religion, tarot cards, astrology, psychics, rock stars, pop scientists, their friends, anyone and anything but Jesus. I personally was once of the opinion that Jesus Christ had no relevance to the modern world. It was something people believed in ages ago, but we've grown past Jesus. There are more sophisticated things now to believe in. Jesus is for simpletons, the unsophisticated, the uneducated, the weak-minded. In actuality, the Christian faith and Jesus is very reasonable, making good intellectual sense. You don't need to be stupid to believe that Jesus and the Christian faith are true. You just need to be willing to see Jesus and Christianity through their own lens rather than the lens of our culture and our own dismissive, closed-mindedness. Verse 58 says, And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. I want to clarify something about this, <clears throat> what's said here. A person's lack of faith doesn't limit what Jesus can do in their life. Their lack of faith can limit what Jesus will do in their life. We've seen Jesus do miracles in response to people's faith in these stories, but Jesus is not dependent upon a person having faith in order to do a miracle. It's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. I've heard people say that Jesus is not able to do a miracle because of a person not having enough faith implying that Jesus is dependent upon that person's faith in order for him to be able to act in their life. That's not quite true. We have a number of examples in the life of Jesus that we've already looked at in the Gospel of Matthew, where he did miraculous things for a person who had little or no faith at all. He doesn't need a person to have faith in order for him to act as if a person's faith is the juice that Jesus runs on or something. Jesus is not dependent upon us in any way to do whatever he chooses to do. He could have chosen to do many miracles among these people, but he didn't because they would not have attributed those miracles to God and seen the miracles as evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Their unbelief prevented them from receiving what Jesus wanted to give them. Our faith is not the thing that empowers Jesus to do things in our life. Our faith enables us to receive from Jesus. 
If Jesus was dependent upon our faith, we would be in big trouble. Thank him that he is faithful even though we are faithless. He loves us too much to let himself be limited by our doubts and fears and lack of imagination. There are many times when Jesus acts in our life in spite of our lack of faith. Amen. In Mark's telling of this story, he says Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He didn't expect such a response from the people in Nazareth. They refused to believe Jesus is anything other than the carpenter's son from Nazareth. Even though these people have seen Jesus do some miracles, and they have heard stories about miracles that Jesus has done in other places, it doesn't produce faith in them. A person's preconceptions and assumptions have a big influence on how they interpret things. If you have a very strong predisposition against believing in the miraculous, then even if you see something that is truly miraculous, you will work very hard to find a way to explain it away. And conversely, if you have a strong predisposition for seeing the miraculous in everything, then you will tend to attribute everything to the supernatural, even when it might actually be a very natural, normal occurrence. These people were already so set against Jesus being anything other than the kid that they had grown up with, that they refused to believe even when presented with what was obvious evidence of supernatural power and teachings that far exceeded the greatest wisdom of people of that time. I want to warn us about the assumptions and the preconceptions that we hold about Jesus Christ. We need to be very careful that we're not writing him off without seriously considering his claims. I believe if a person will examine the real Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of Western church culture, they will come to faith in him as the Son of God, the Messiah. The evidence is too compelling to come to any other conclusion. Now, that's my opinion. But I think it's a good one. Before ending, I want to say a little bit about us facing rejection for our faith in Jesus. When you became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you may have had an experience similar, really, to what Jesus goes through here, but on a much smaller scale. Jesus came into your life. He began changing you. He filled you with this new kind of joy and excitement. And you wanted to share this new thing with others. But when you started to share it with your family and your friends and your neighbors and your workmates, you weren't warmly welcomed. They weren't interested in listening to your story about Jesus coming into your life. They wouldn't give serious consideration to what you wanted to share with them. When you're a new believer, they might say something like, oh, right, you're a Christian now. You've found God now. 
you can't fool me. I know you. This is just another phase you're going through. You'll get over it. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. I want to mention some things to help us <clears throat> when we are dismissed by others when we try to share our faith in Jesus with them. We've talked about some of these things before, but it's good for us to be reminded of them again. First, let's make sure we're being rejected for the right reason. If we're being an obnoxious jerk, then we have ourselves to blame for being dismissed. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter wrote, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with gentleness and respect. Now, assuming that we are sharing Jesus with gentleness and respect, we need to not take the rejection personally. It's not us they're rejecting. There are lots of things going on in a person's mind and heart when they're wrestling with the implications of the gospel. The choice to turn from living our life on our own terms versus following Jesus, it's a difficult choice to make. It's a big decision. Let's give people room to wrestle with that decision, to wrestle with God, to give the Holy Spirit room to work in the person's life. Sometimes we, we get really pushy in a really foolish way. You know, it's like just back off the throttle a bit. Give people some room to wrestle with this thing. You are given the opportunity to have room to wrestle with this thing. They need the same opportunity to do that. Something that's intriguing, I think, about Jesus is how even he didn't take it personally when people rejected him. He didn't get defensive when people rejected him. He didn't get mad. He didn't get downcast and discouraged. We need to keep our focus on the big picture. The Lord is always playing the long game. The Lord is always playing the long game. The Lord is in this thing for eternity. And we need to be too. Rejection today doesn't mean rejection forever. God is continuing to work in that person's life to bring them to a place of saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's not done yet. We need to maintain reasonable expectations. Jesus was rejected. Why would we think we won't be? In John 15, 18, Jesus said this to his followers. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 12, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That doesn't mean that we're going to get run down all the time by people. But we should have reasonable expectations and realize that they persecuted Jesus, they rejected Jesus, they 
dismissed Jesus. Don't be surprised if you get persecuted, disrespected, dismissed. Two. Finally, we need to continue to pray for people. The battle for people's hearts is fought and won in the spiritual realm, right? And so we continue to pray for people. In closing this morning, before my voice is completely gone, I guess, I think some of those trees out there blossoming are, are getting after me. I ask you this, has familiarity with Jesus Christ bred contempt towards him in your mind and heart? Have you heard about Jesus Christ so much that you don't take him seriously? Have you become so familiar with him that you can't see the profoundness of who he really is, what he's done for the human race, the importance of you seriously evaluating your position with him? That's a dangerous place to be. And I encourage you to open your heart and your mind to see the real Jesus. For the people in Jesus' hometown, the biggest obstacle that kept them from embracing him and the salvation that God offers through him was their pride in thinking they already knew who Jesus was. I believe that's one of the biggest obstacles keeping people in our day from embracing Jesus as Savior and Lord too. We think we already know who Jesus is. We grew up with remnants and bits and pieces of Christianity and Jesus woven into the fabric of our culture, but those bits and pieces don't represent the reality. It reminds me of the old story of the blind men who encountered an elephant. Maybe you remember this story. Each man came into contact with a different part of the elephant and tried to draw conclusions about what the elephant was. One man took hold of the tail and he said, the elephant is like a rope. Another took hold of the trunk and said, the elephant is like a snake. Another came up against one of the huge legs of the elephant and said, the elephant is like a tree. They really had no idea what they were dealing with because the elephant is so much more than the various bits and pieces. In the same way, if you are assuming that you know who Jesus Christ is based on the bits and pieces of information that you have collected while growing up in this culture, then you have no idea who you are really dealing with. Jesus is so much more than that. He is the elephant in the room that demands our serious consideration. Amen? Amen. And I pray that you will seriously consider him if you have never done that before. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for those here who have joined us in the room or through the live stream. I pray that today they would give serious consideration to your son, Jesus Christ, that he's not the bits and pieces that they have collected through their cultural Christianity that they have encountered and grown up with, that he's something much more than that, that he's the son of God, the savior of the world. And I pray for those who have never opened up their heart to 
you before Jesus, that today would be the day that they do that, that they would embrace you, that they would say, yes, I want that. I want to know you, Jesus. I want this salvation that you're offering. I pray that today would be the day that they do that. And for those of us who have opened up our heart and we have embraced you, Lord, I pray that we would share that with others and you would protect our hearts from being discouraged when we're rejected and dismissed, Lord, that we would continue to trust you and continue to pray and have faith that you will touch and change the lives of those that we love and we pray for, Lord. Make these things so in the name of Jesus. Amen.